in his book, After Humanity, a guide to C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, Father Michael Ward writes that Lewis, in the book, The Abolition of Man, quote, defends the objectivity of value, pointing to the universal moral ecology that all great philosophical and religious traditions have acknowledged as self-evident, close quote, have acknowledged as self-evident, at least until just recently. This is the After Dinner Scholar from Wyoming Catholic College, and I'm your host, Dr. Jim Tonkowicz. Today, the idea that there might be, quote, a universal moral ecology, close quote, seems unthinkable. My truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. My morality is my morality. I make my own decisions. I will what I wish. A friend who teaches at a prestigious private boarding school tells me that he's had more than one student argue that the Nazi killing machine was simply a reflection of their culture, good and bad, right or wrong, played no part in analyzing and understanding it. I find that story terrifying. Believing that ideas have consequences and having an ability to reason from premises to conclusions, C.S. Lewis saw our moral confusion, and in the abolition of man, he issued a firm warning. Dr. Travis Judd recently taught the abolition of man as part of a sophomore leadership course that, I thought to myself, is something worth talking about. Dr. Judd, The Abolition of Man seems unlike C.S. Lewis's apologetics book, Mere Christianity, I mean, in, in the sense that he doesn't argue for the truth of Christianity. What does he do in that book? That's right, Jim. Uh, Lewis specifically points out in The Abolition of Man, in fact, uh, that the book, although, of course, he himself is a theist and indeed a Christian, he's not attempting in this book to make a theological argument. You could say that the book is a defense of reason, even a defense of reasonableness or a defense of reality, uh, in the face, perhaps, of a culture and an intellectual system that attempts to put the will absolute and unassailable above all other things, including nature. And how does the will do that? How, how, are we, how, how did Lewis see that we were in that kind of situation? You could say, uh, in a sense, Lewis's main goal in the work is to convince his audience of the existence of nature or natures, maybe more properly, which is to say that things have natures. Uh, humans have human nature, which is to say that what we are and who we are is not simply a matter of our free choice, our self-determination, but is rather fundamentally bound up with our nature as creatures and as human beings. And I suppose what that means practically is that life, morality, happiness is principally concerned with the question, how can I conform myself to reality rather than how can I try to make reality conform to me? And uh, I suppose the, the application of this difference in mindset for educators, uh, Lewis describes as the difference between the way a, a poultry keeper manages his flock and the way that uh, an adult bird, a grown bird, teaches a young bird to fly, that the, the, the poultry keeper has ends of his own for how to shape the birds, but a grown bird rather wants the young bird to grow in conformity with its own nature. Uh, 
Uh, and so, so too for us as educators, the goal should be men training other men to be men, right? Or training human beings to be human beings, uh, transmitting humanity to, to fellow men. Well, beginning with the denial of any universal moral standard, a denial of what Lewis calls the Tao, Lewis paints a fairly ugly picture of what happens next. Where does he think denying the Tao will lead? Yeah, uh, Lewis uses the, the term the Tao, uh, which is a Chinese word, uh, as a sort of stand-in for, uh, as I've mentioned already, reality or, or uh, natural law. He points out that the Tao is something that you can find across cultures. Uh, you, you find it everywhere in the world from the most ancient civilizations up to the present day. He walks us through, in this book, he walks us through the logical consequences of, of basing morality simply on my will rather than on reality or reason or human nature. At, at the end of the book, he has this stirring passage where he talks about the consequences of, uh, as he, he puts it, seeing through traditional morality. He says, uh, it can be a good thing to see through, right, to see the reasons behind things. But he says, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. He says that the whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. He says, it's, it's good that the window is transparent because the garden behind it is opaque. But what if the garden were also transparent? Right? What if you saw through that as well? And uh, has this lovely passage there at the end of saying, to see through everything is the same thing as not to see at all. In, in other words, right, if you were to see through everything, it's no different than being blind. In the same way, uh, our goal, whether in morality or the intellectual life or what have you, is to principally conform ourselves to reality rather than attempting uh, to conform reality to ourselves, recognizing, of course, that we are a part of reality, right? We have human nature and we are part of uh, the natural order as well. Now, rather than reading this book for a theology course or for a philosophy course, uh, you chose the abolition of man as part of a sophomore leadership course. Uh, tell us about that. Why did you choose this book and what does it have to do with leadership? Yeah, that's a great question, Jim. In the book, Lewis makes the strong connection that for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem had been how to conform the soul to reality. And the solution for the wise men of old was knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue. But for a Baconian and Cartesian applied science, the problem instead is how to subdue reality to the wishes of men, and the solution is a technique. But if the wise men of old are correct, as Lewis argues, our focus should be in conforming the soul to reality through knowledge, self-discipline, and virtue, as he puts it. And for those who know WCC, this should sound a lot like what we are trying to do in the experiential leadership program. Yeah, you, uh, you get out in the wilderness for three weeks backpacking. You, you better conform yourself to reality. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> you don't have a lot of choices. <laughs> That's right. What did the students make of the book? Uh, they were blown away by this reading. Uh, I've, I've taught this uh, for two years in a row now, and consistently the, the students 
report that this is one of their favorite readings in the semester. Um, I, it's just such a powerful book. I've, for myself, I've, I've read uh, most of Lewis's works, and this is definitely my favorite. I, I'd certainly highly recommend it to, to any of our listeners out there. And uh, how did they apply it to their own leadership? Yeah, for a lot of the students, this book finally puts language to their experience on the 21-day trip and on their week-long outdoor trips. On the one hand, it shows them the logical consequences of rejecting a classical and Aristotelian Thomistic worldview, but more directly related to the outdoor program, it shows them the value of their experience in real leadership situations with real consequences, developing real self-discipline and virtue. I think the, the students quickly grasp that the formation here at WCC is not just about educating the head. We aren't forming men without chests, as Lewis puts it, uh, as I think so often happens in the universities. We are forming students intellectually, yes, but also morally. Uh, and that happens in large part through real experience of the good, the true, and the beautiful. Mm -hmm. And were there any, any unexpected insights by the students? The students are, are constantly, I think, making these, uh, these connections between their, uh, their particular experience on outdoor trips uh, and then their, this reading in, in particular. I think they were able to make a lot of, uh, of really interesting connections there. How might Lewis's argument about the idea of the Tao be useful today uh, for leaders? The first chapter of the book is titled Men Without Chests. And uh, in the chapter, Lewis has a great explanation of the nature of man, where he explains that the head, the intellect, ought to rule the belly, which is the lower appetites, through the mediation of the chest, uh, which he terms the seat of virtue. The chest needs to be developed, and the way this happens is by training, principally. Uh, the way to become courageous is not simply by reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics to understand the definition of courage. That can be helpful, but to be courageous requires doing courageous acts over and over to develop the habit, which is the virtue of courage. Uh, it's the value of experience, you might say. And it's really what we're all about in the experiential leadership program here at WCC. Well, and there's that wonderful quote that's, I'm, 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 part of me wants to say it's overquoted, but it's not. It should be quoted and quoted and quoted that says, you know, you remove the chest and then you expect virtue out of people. You create a, a, a gelding and say, go, go out and be fruitful. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. He, uh, it's a, a powerful passage there at the end of that first chapter that he has, but he, talking about society, he says, right, we, we castrate and bid the geldings be fruitful. Yeah, we, we take away the means to virtue, uh, but we still expect it in our society, um, right? We, uh, he says there in that uh, chapter as well, uh, we laugh at loyalty and then we are surprised to find traitors in our midst. Right, that seems to be the, unfortunately, the situation of, of so much of our culture these days. In, in helping out with career development here at the colleges, I've looked over job descriptions for uh, entry-level positions in various companies. 
What I've noticed is a lot of companies are hiring virtue. You know, the, 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 the hard skills, you know, whether it's uh, accounting or whatever, that, yeah, they want that, but they're really hiring virtue. You can, it, it's written into the job description. This can't go on forever. No doubt. Yeah, there's certainly certainly a dearth of that these days. And I think uh, WCC is uh, very intentionally attempting to foster uh, good people, not simply uh, intellectuals. Yes, we do form the mind, of course, but uh, the formation here is a human formation, a whole human formation. And so we're hoping to form the person as a person, not simply as a mind. Writing in the April 13th Wall Street Journal, columnist Daniel Henninger wrote, quote, evil fell into disrepute years ago. Evil implied the possibility of a devil, and both came to be seen as impediments to some form of private personal behavior. So we demoted evil and expanded the definition of goodness. But banishing the devil came with a price which is apparent as the world stares into the abyss of human ruin in Ukraine, close quote. Whether or not we can again recover the notion of evil and with it the notion of good is yet to be seen. Lewis does, however, demonstrate the great need we have to affirm absolute standards of moral ecology in this world, lest we lose our freedom and with it our humanity. As he wrote, quote, a dogmatic belief in objective value is necessary to the very idea of a rule which is not tyranny or an obedience which is not slavery. For Wyoming Catholic College, this is Dr. Jim Tonkowicz.